Daniel chapter 7. Last, uh, last week, we saw a very fearful picture. Uh, we saw the four winds of heaven. And again, you think of, again, usually just a single wind blowing, but here we've got every wind at the same time blowing. What kind of a wind is that? We, I don't know that we have really a name for that kind of wind. And they're stirring up the great sea. And the sea, in the imagery of Daniel, the sea is something evil. It's not, it's not pictured as a good part of God's good creation. The sea is evil. It's a force that is threatening to swallow up the new creation. So, so when God led his people through the Red Sea, they walked on dry ground. God's, God's new creation lives on dry ground not in the sea. And so the sea is a threat to that creation. We imagine, then you, you can imagine, the Bible speaks of God setting bars and gates and boundaries so that the sea would not pass those gates and swallow up the creation. And so we could imagine on a literal level, the oceans literally breaking through the boundaries that God has set and then swallowing up all the dry land and turning it once again, into something formless and void. And the reason, of course, this matters to us is that we are God's new creation. That's that's what we are. And so this imagery of the four winds stirring up the great sea, when we see that in the vision, we know that is a threat to us. That's not just a crazy picture and visual effects and whatever else. This is, this is for real. This is for real. And it's a real threat to a real people. It's us. What strength, then, we ask, That's, this is really the point, what strength or power do we have to resist the power of the sea? Unleashed against us. If you stand, if you just stand on, on, on the shores of the ocean, right? You look out at that vast ocean and you feel pretty powerless before it. That's when it's calm. Certainly if you're out on it in a ship, I mean, it's, you're, you're helpless, right? So this is the power of the ocean against which we are, we are helpless. And so we, we fortify ourselves with this reminder that we know one who is sovereign over the sea. The God who goes out to battle against this, this cosmic sea in redemption that's evil and a threat is actually the same God who in creation, in Genesis 1, formed the sea and made Leviathan to frolic in it, to play in the sea. That's, that's how sovereign our God is. When the pagans wanted to picture uh, the, the scariest, most frightful thing that they could picture, it was the sea. And the gods had to bring the sea under control, and yet the sea was always threatening to break loose. And yet, and yet in Scripture, we have a God who, who created the sea and created the sea monsters to play in the sea. This is who our God is. And so we need to fortify ourselves, in fact, because the next thing Daniel sees is four great beasts coming up out of the sea. And again, where they come from tells you what these beasts are about. There are evil forces against which we're completely helpless. We are just helpless, spiritually helpless in ourselves. So as with the sea from which they came, the, the purpose of these beasts is to devour God's people, God's new creation. That's what the sea does. That's what these beasts do. Now, these beasts are the sea incarnate, embodied. And so these beasts come up out of the sea, and their goal is to devour you and to devour me and us as God's redeemed people, as the people that he's chosen. And so once again... 
we we see though we, we we saw last week these reminders that that the sea is not sovereign, the beasts are not sovereign, and yet as the vision unfolds, it gets worse and worse, and each successive beast is scarier than the one that came before it. And it appears, as time goes along and the beasts come, that, that they're off the leash completely. That God is looking the other way. That, that he's ceased to pay attention. And so taken all together, these four beasts, remember four is an important number, they stand behind and represent the whole course of human history to the end. Now remember, I I just want to help us see this. Because a lot of times when we read Daniel and read Daniel 7, we come to these four beasts, and the whole time we're reading this chapter, our minds are going crazy saying, okay, what's this? What's this? What's this? What's this? What's that? And so we say, oh, the first beast is Babylon. The second beast is Persia, Medo-Persia. The third beast is Greece. The fourth beast is Rome. And then the ten horns and the little horn and the one side higher than the other. And we're always doing the work of decoding. And in a sense, that's accurate. And we could do that here and and be absolutely right. But then we have to ask, why why did God make us do all the decoding? Why did he talk? Why didn't he just talk straightforward? Why didn't he just say? He knew. And then not only that, but why did he use such crazy language? Not really crazy, but crazy by how we look at things. And the reason, brothers and sisters, is that is that this vision tells us more than just about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The reason is that he wanted to give us a world view. He wanted to give us a picture of the history of the world to the very end so that, so that the applicability of this text would move beyond the time of Rome and to all of history until we see the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. Which is what we'll come to this morning. The point then of apocalyptic is to help us see that behind the human events in this world, the events you read about in your history book, right, behind all of those events are real cosmic spiritual powers that are not visible to us. And when we come then to see reality as God reveals it to us, what's the point? Maybe you say, I don't want to see things like that. Well, we can stick our heads in the sand. It's really what that, what that is. And we can feel more comfortable at some level. But at another level, the reality is we need to be in a place where we're not ever surprised by what this world can throw at us. Where we're not taken off guard. We're not surprised. And so we need this vision of reality, of the way things are. And instead then of being uh, paranoid, and frightened, will be fortified, will be encouraged to trust a God who is sovereign and not to put our trust in, 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 in a world around us or in men or things or in ourselves. We'll be encouraged to actually put our trust where it belongs. And when we do that, we do not fear. We're not afraid. You know, we, we don't want to hear these things at some level because we don't want to be afraid. But it's, the, it's hearing these things that is the key to not being afraid. Because it puts our eyes where they need to be. Sometimes, though, it is difficult to see any of the restraining power of God. I mean, if you read enough of of history, you see times like that. And we can feel like that in our own lives, whether personally or in the bigger scope of things. Sometimes it seems the beast is sovereign. Doesn't it? It just seems like that. And it seems like then the raging sea is going to swallow up God's new creation and break all its boundaries. We feel that as we watch with Daniel and we see this vision that he sees. It's not been good news so far in terms of what he sees. And yet Daniel's vision does not end with the fourth beast. <laughs> it doesn't end with that with that, where we left off last week, that little horn having eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. 
Instead, it's just at this point when seems, things seem to all outward appearances to be most hopeless, when, when it seems that the evil has prevailed. It's just at this point we most need to keep on looking with Daniel and see what he sees. So, so the goal this morning is to see what Daniel sees. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I mean, at some level, again, you don't need to say anything. You just need to see what he sees. But to put it in perspective, whereas a moment ago, everything seemed out of control, right? Everything was running amok and havoc and, and out of control. Whereas just a moment ago, the raging sea seemed ready to swallow up God's new creation. Just a moment ago, it seemed the whole world was in upheaval. Now, suddenly, we, we lift our eyes and they're captivated. And I use the word captivated because I, I think that's accurate. They are riveted, they're captivated by this picture of the utmost, in your handout, stability and calm. Right? Well, everything here is going crazy. We have this picture there of something unaffected. Something untouched by everything on, on earth. And so, Daniel says, as I looked. I love, I love that he says that. Because it's almost like he's reminding us. He's like, as I was looking at all these things. At the raging sea and the four beasts coming out of the sea. And the little horn with eyes like a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I was looking at all those things, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Yeah. So, in the midst of, uh, of all of this, here is something or someone wholly unaffected. Untouched by the upheaval of the last eight verses. Now that's, that's, that's difficult for us to even at some level imagine because we cannot be unaffected by this. We cannot be. But there is one who is. Not in ourselves. In the midst of the raging sea, you see this chaotic sea where there's, it's formless, as it were, and it's chaos. And then here's a place where everything is solid. Here's a place that's firm, that's immovable. And a place that can't be touched, no matter how high the breakers of the sea mount, no matter how high they're raised, it's invincible. It's untouchable. And of course, what we really see in this vision is not a place, although it is a place, but a person. One that Daniel describes as the Ancient of Days. And, and Daniel's the only one in the whole Bible that uses this title. Why then here? You know, you have to ask. Why in this moment do we see him described and, and given this title, The Ancient of Days took his seat? And I think it's just because above all the change and all the flux and all the upheaval in the world, there is one who has been and is always the same. We see beasts arising one after the other, and yet there's one who was there before the beasts and will be after the beasts. So while the beasts came up from out of the sea, here is one who did not come up from out of anywhere. Remember, the beast came up from out of somewhere. This one has come up from out of nowhere. And therefore, he's always been and always will be. Even the sea had a beginning. But this one, who alone can be called the Ancient of Days, he already was before the sea. Therefore, he will be when the sea is no more. And so if he's the Ancient of Days, then as the psalmist says, he is from everlasting to everlasting. The point of these things is, is not just to, to give us a vision of something detached from us, but to assure us that there is one who is an everlasting rock, an anchor, 
an unchanging fortress and refuge to all who cling to him with a humble, simple faith. I love that I love that it's not rocket science, it's not complicated, it's not above certain people to to be rooted to this rock, as it were, to stand on this foundation. All it's a matter of is a humble, simple faith in his word and who he has told us he is as the ancient of days who takes his seat. So the psalmist says in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. See, that's the point. The point is that this one is our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We could, we could say you are my God, our God. As I was looking at all these things, thrones are placed in the ancient days, Daniel says, took his seat. Which is an interesting picture because we picture, what well, isn't God always sitting enthroned and ruling over the world? Is he not sitting now enthroned? And in, indeed he is, or he wouldn't be the ancient of days. The psalmist says, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So it's interesting, again, the imagery is not that God has not been enthroned and then now he is. <laughs> the, point is the point is that he's taking his seat to engage now in a specific activity. In a specific moment of time, something is about to happen. So yes, brothers and sisters, God today sits enthroned, sovereignly ruling this world. Sovereignly in control of the sea that rages and the beasts that come up out of the sea. He's in charge. And it's one thing for me to say, not me to say on my own authority, but on the authority of the word of God. He's in charge. It's another thing to see it the way Daniel sees it here. And to realize, yes, the threat is real, but God is sovereign. Um, He sits enthroned now. But there is a sense in which he will one day take his seat to do something special. Why, you know, this is a comfort to us that he's sitting enthroned. It's also a comfort to us that he's not sitting yet. (laughs) Because we have to ask, why does the sea still rage? If he's sitting enthroned... Why are there still beasts running around on the earth? And the answer is only because the thrones have not yet been placed. And the Ancient of Days has not yet taken his seat for judgment. The final day of judgment has not yet come. That's why. That's why. And yet here in this vision, we see that future day with Daniel in a way that Daniel couldn't see because he lived before Christ. And we live after. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And again, I encourage you, lift your eyes up to see with Daniel what he sees. Remember, this is apocalyptic. And so, the imagery is meant to communicate literal realities. But we are not meant to take it literally. And this is where a lot of us can get confused. Because we say, I'm supposed to interpret the Bible literally. Well, the Bible is always communicating literal truth. But we do not interpret every genre of literature literally. Meaning, God does not literally have white hair. God does not literally wear white clothes. Now, if that is the case, then why does Daniel see a vision with him, white hair and white clothes? If it's, if it's symbolic and not literal, we have to ask, what does it mean? Why did God choose to give Daniel a vision in which this is what he sees? Because it's communicating something powerful to us. 
And in order to understand that, we cannot just use our fanciful imaginations. We have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So a lot of times we can get nervous saying, well, if we don't interpret it literally, if God doesn't literally have white hair, then how, how do we know that we're safe grounds in interpreting what it means? We use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so in the New Testament, whiteness is associated with radiance and glory, as it is in the old. Matthew says of the angel who appeared to the women at the empty tomb, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Now notice how you have lightning and whiteness uh, pictured. When we draw a picture of lightning, we usually make the lightning yellow. Um, But in fact, when you look at lightning at night, it appears pretty white. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the appearance of Jesus at his transfiguration in very similar ways, but all in little different ways. His clothes became white as light. Uh, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. His clothing became dazzling white. Now, this is, if we didn't have this to go on, this would be not so legitimate. But we know today that white is the color, right, that we see when an object reflects back to us all of the different visible wavelengths of light. So, light is full of all different colors. And when all of those colors together are reflected back to us, at least the visible colors, we see white. So there's a sense in which we could say that light is itself white. What we're meant to see here is not then hair that's white because the light shines on it. Okay? This is not, this is not white hair because that turned the light on and you saw, oh, it's white. No, this is hair that's white because it is itself light, radiant, blinding, dazzling. That's the whiteness of this hair. In other words, it's not the white hair of wisdom, although God is infinitely wise. It's not the white hair of old age. It's the hair, because this being is pictured in, in terms of a being that we imagine as a, as, a, as a human, a son of man almost, although we're going to see the son of man in a moment uh, next week. But we see this, this being having hair that is white with radiance. The clothing in this vision of the Ancient of Days is not white because the light shines upon it. You see, oh, it's white clothes. He's not wearing black clothes or gray clothes. It's white. No, it's white because you guaranteed to see it because it is dazzlingly radiant. It is in itself white as light. And it's this radiant and intense whiteness of God's glory that symbolizes his incomprehensible purity. We talk about God being pure. And for us, purity is so often just the absence of impurity. How do we think about purity? Well, it's not impure. But God's purity is not just the absence of moral defects in him or any blemish. God's purity is just who he is. It's the sum total of all his infinite perfections. That's his purity. It's who he is. It's the sum total of every different wavelength of light, perfectly balanced, perfectly blended together in a blinding glory of white. That's purity. Uh, you, don't, you don't even have to know what impurity is to know that this is purity. God's purity isn't just the absence of darkness in him. It is the reality that he is in himself, in his very nature, light. God is light. 
the, John, the Apostle John says. And so, so if you think about it like this, standing before this ancient of days whose clothing is white as snow, the hair of whose head is white like pure wool, you stand before him. And what does that mean? It means that everything is brought into the light and exposed and laid bare. You cannot stand in the presence of God without being utterly laid bare, all brought into the light. So here then is the only righteous judge. What does this mean that God is? He is a righteous judge whose judgments are just and true. Here's the one who sees all and knows all. But having said all this, the purity of God does still mean that there is no moral defect in him, certainly. And therefore, if there is nothing immoral or no blemish in God, he can never, ever look with favor. We take our sin lightly, don't we, at some level? We all do, at some level. But we, we, we need to understand that God never has ever taken lightly any sin we've ever committed, ever, because of who he is. It would be contrary to his nature, to his very being. He doesn't think about our sins like we think of them. He can never look with favor upon anything that is evil or perverse or morally unclean or that in any way is, is contrary to his purity. So the Apostle John writes, God is light and since he is light, in him is no darkness at all. The prophet Habakkuk then speaks of God as the one who is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. What does that mean about me? So on the one hand, God is sovereign over evil. Here's a wonderful mystery. On the one hand, God is sovereign over evil, over the sea, over the beasts that rise out of the sea. Remember the first language in the first eight verses, remember it was lifted up. So here God is lifting up the beast. It was made to stand. God makes the beast to stand. God puts the mind of a man in the beast. God tells the beast, arise, devour much flesh. God gives dominion to the beast. So God is sovereign over the beast on the one hand, over evil, and that's a source of comfort to us. And yet there's another source of comfort On the other hand, God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And that too comforts us because in Daniel's vision, we see the Ancient of Days clothed in garments white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, and we know that here is one who hates, abhors, loathes the evil of these beasts that he is sovereign over. On the one hand, the beasts receive their dominion only from the one who is sovereign over them. On the other hand, the one who is sovereign over them hates the evil that they commit and abhors and loathes it. So here's a powerful assurance for us. If you, if you ever wonder, will the final day of judgment actually come? Well, we believe that it will, not only because God has told us it will on the basis of his own word, but we believe it will come because of who God has told us he is. God cannot be God and not bring this world to judgment. God cannot be white as light, right? He cannot be who he is, light, without ultimately judging the evil of all that is contrary to his purity. It will then come because it must come. So we go on to read in verses 9 to 10, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Once again, we ought to picture this very literally, because this is what Daniel literally saw. But it's a symbolic picture that communicates something literally true. 
So what, is a, what does a throne that is fiery flames mean? What do wheels burning with fire and a stream of fire issuing from God's throne mean? One commentator writes this. He says, He who descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke to his people from the midst of that fire still consumes in the white heat of his purity everything that is unworthy of himself. So in other words, the fact that we see a consuming fire here is simply the natural outworking of the fact that God is pure. How could a God this pure not at the same time be a consuming fire of all that is impure? How could a God who is pure light not at the same time be a devouring flame? How is that even possible? It couldn't be. So when God reveals himself to Israel at Sinai, we read this, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The point is that he consumes in his holiness and purity all that is unworthy of his holiness and purity, of who he is. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Looking back on the day, Moses reminds the Israelites, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. And then Moses concludes, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. So let me read that quote again. I, I think it's really good. He says, he who descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke to his people from the midst of that fire still consumes in the white heat of his purity everything that is unworthy of himself. On the one hand, we respond in two ways. It causes us to worship God with reverence and awe, to use the writer of Hebrews language, because we see just how infinite are his mercies to us in Christ. That this one who is a consuming fire should not consume us is a miracle of mercy and grace. On the other hand, this should cause us to rest now as those who who have been covered by the blood of Jesus who who are covered in his perfect purity and holiness. That's why we're not consumed. As those who are in that safe place, yet we still live in a world surrounded by impurity and, and filthiness and wicked and beasts that seek to devour us. And so living in this world, we rest now in the certainty that there is a future final day of judgment. Isaiah 33 says the sinners in Zion are afraid. Not not the righteous. The righteous are not afraid. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless, not the godly who have come to God in faith in Jesus Christ, but the godless tremble. Who among us can dwell with this consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Isaiah 66 and many other references we could read. But behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. His throne, Daniel sees in his vision, was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And the imagery here is of chariot wheels. And therefore, what do we have? We have a chariot throne. Um, So this is a throne with wheels, but it's a chariot throne. On the one hand, we can picture God's throne immovable, established, firm in one place. On the other hand, lest we think of God's throne as far off and, and not near, we can also picture God's throne as a chariot on which he comes, on which he rides through the heavens. Behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots, like the whirlwind, the Lord will come 
The prophet Ezekiel, if you remember in the first couple of chapters of Ezekiel, he sees this awesome vision of, of God. And there's four cherubim, each one with a wheel beside it, and there's a wheel within a wheel. And over the heads and the outstretched wings of these cherubim, there is this expanse, uh, a pavement as it were, a clear pavement. And above the expanse, there's the likeness of a throne. And on the throne, one is sitting. And so here too, with the angels upholding the expanse on which is the throne, in which is sitting the Lord, the sovereign of all the universe, we have this picture of of a chariot throne. Why does he need to have a chariot throne? Well, it, it pictures for us this reality. That God is not distant and far off. He's a God who rides through the deserts like he did with Israel in their wilderness wanderings. He's a God who rides through the heavens and who ultimately, brothers and sisters, he comes. He comes. He's not stuck up there. He comes in salvation. And he comes in judgment. So Psalm 68 says, sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. Obviously, God does not need to ride on anything to go through the deserts. But the picture is his sovereignty when he comes. And, the, and, and what he does when he comes. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens. The ancient heavens. Deuteronomy 33, there is none like God, O Yeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Psalm 18 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode On a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. What message do the wheels in Daniel's vision communicate to us? When we see wheels, what does that tell us? It tells us that God's chariot throne on which he sits means that he is a God who comes. And that he will finally, at the end, come as he's not yet come before. He will come and intervene in the affairs of men and of nations, not only for judgment, but for salvation. What a wonderful thing it is, brothers and sisters, just to have this vision, to have this vision fixed in our minds of the Ancient of Days seated on his chariot throne. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Now literally that's a hundred and one million. But do you think it's literal? No, it's telling us something literally. A thousand thousands is one million. Ten thousand times ten thousands is one hundred million. But the point of saying a thousand thousands and ten thousand times ten thousands is just a figure of speech to tell us. Don't bother to try counting. You, You don't have long enough in all of your life to finish counting. The uncountable hosts of angels Literally uncountable. Maybe not. But more than we can count that are standing before the ancient of days always ready to do 
his will. Throughout scripture, that's what the angels are there for. They carry out the righteous judgments of God. Now, did God need angels to carry out his righteous judgments? No, he didn't need them. But he has chosen to do things this way. And those angels are empowered by his own sovereign word. And I think it's one of the ways that he condescends also partly to our own weakness. Throughout scripture then we, we see this because so Jesus speaks of the day when he, he will come in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Paul describes a day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Jude says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. And so when the ancient of days speaks, all the hosts of heaven act. That's just the way it is. When the ancient of days decrees, All the innumerable armies of heaven carry out and accomplish what he decrees. Empowered by his sovereign word. We we need this vision, really, on a daily basis. Because of how flesh and blood we are, how frail and weak. How fearful we can be on the one hand. And how foolish we can be in putting our trust in anything and anyone other than this God. So we come to the last words of verse 10 in the end of this part of Daniel's vision. He says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is still apocalyptic. Uh, We are not meant to imagine that there are literal books any more than we're to imagine God literally has white hair, wears white clothing, that his throne is literally, actually, literally fire, and that there are literally 101 million angels, not more, not less, standing before him. So then we have to ask, why does God tell us about, why does God give us a picture of books being opened? What truth is he communicating to us? Well, on the one hand, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So, on the one hand, inscribed in these books, what's in these books? The infallible record of all of history. Whatever has happened behind dark, secret, closed doors, whatever the wickedness and the evil that has ever been done, It's written in this book. Whatever the good, whatever the righteous, it's written in these books. It's an infallible record. Nothing's been missed. On the other hand, it's more than God just watching and saying, oh, look what happened. Look what happened. I'll write that down. It's not not that either. It's, It's on the other hand, the true and infallible record of all that God has decreed and his righteous judgments unto the very end. So it's both. Exodus chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. In other words, don't write what just happened. I mean, although that's in the book, that's in God's book. He's saying now, write what I will do. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Isaiah chapter 30. And now go, write it before them. Write this on a tablet, inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Write what I will do. Isaiah 34. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. Not one of the things that God has said is going to happen will not happen because God has written in his book. The mouth of the Lord. Has commanded. So, what's the point of the book? It's this. When we see these books being opened, we're comforted to know that all will one day be put to rights because nothing's been missed and God's decrees are all encompassing, spanning from the beginning to the end. Nothing will be missed, nothing will be left undone, everything put to rights. I don't understand how. It seems to me impossible. Honestly, brothers and sisters, it seems to me impossible. 
And yet, the God that we serve, we know, is not made like us. He is the creator of all. And so, just when the books have been opened now, now all of a sudden, we are thoroughly entranced in this vision, right? But all of a sudden, we hear this voice still speaking. Remember that fourth beast with the little horn from verse 8, the one that was so scary? With the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things? Well, he's still talking. He's still speaking great things. And so we read in verses 11 to 12, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion had been taken away though their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. In other words, the point is, while their dominion had been taken away, in this apocalyptic vision, their power and authority continued on. But now, here at the end, all four of the beasts are destroyed all at once. Just like when the mountain, the rock cut from the mountain, rolls down the mountain and destroys the whole image that represented all four of the kingdoms all at once, right? We see this here, and, and so, so, so I want to ask, did, did you expect a struggle? Right? We saw the sea, we saw the beasts, we saw this happening. We see the Ancient of Days, and then we say, is there going to be a struggle? Is there going to be any kind of a contest? No, this is the biggest anticlimax ever. It's true, if the beast should ever finally be left to itself, let's not underestimate the power of the beast. If it was left to itself, it would mean your eternal destruction in the fires of hell. And mine. When we see four beasts rising from out of the sea, we do tremble with fear. We ought to. We're stupid not to. We're foolish not to, at least in ourselves, because these are evil forces against which we have no power. But then our eyes are, to go back to that word, our eyes are captivated. And may your eyes always be captivated all of your life by this picture of true sovereignty. It's not an ignorant, naive picture. It doesn't ignore the realities. And yet it is reality. A picture of perfect stability and calm. Here then, in the midst of the raging sea, is a place where all is solid, firm and immovable, a place that cannot be touched by the breakers of the sea. And it's as we meditate then on this part of the vision that we have an unfailing source of peace and hope and joy, even, as we face the tumult and upheaval that's all around us in this world. And when, I, when we talk about the tumult and upheaval in the world, it, it's, it's, it's upheaval that comes and goes in some ways. Here at, at our circumstances in America, you know, it seems like there's a lot of tumult and upheaval, and there is right now, maybe in ways that there weren't 50 years ago, right? A hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries, what will it look like? We don't know, right? There have been times in history where the world has seemed in more upheaval than others, but at the end of the day, we're not surprised ever. And at the end of the day, we're not afraid. Not only can we look at the world scene and, and feel overwhelmed by that, but we can just look at our own lives and see the ways that, yes, the devil does prowl still around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And he does that through just sufferings in our own lives individually, through fears, through, through anxieties, through sufferings, through pain, through physical sufferings, through emotional, mental sufferings of different kinds. And in all of this flux and turmoil, we lift our eyes and we see the Ancient of Days. And it doesn't make all of that go away yet. 
It will when he comes on his chariot throne. But just knowing that he's coming and knowing that he is who he is is what strengthens us then to face each day with confidence, with peace, and with ultimately a deep-seated joy. Though it can be mixed with grief and, and pain at the same time. No matter how fearful the raging sea or the beasts that rise from out of that sea. In the end, the Ancient of Days will take his seat. His clothing is white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne is fiery flames, its wheels burning fire. A stream of fire issues and comes out from before him. A thousand thousand serve him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stand before him. And the court will sit in judgment, and the books will be opened. And then the beast will be killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And then what do you think God's new creation is going to do? I mean, I can't begin to hardly imagine. But we, as God's new creation, I know we'll do this, because the Bible tells us we will. We will sing, and we will dance, and we will exult, and we'll rejoice together forever and ever and ever and ever in perfect happiness and peace. So the Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 19, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. 